Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your creation. Father, we thank you for this morning after last night's rain, the way that things are fresh and clean and seem brand new. And Father, on this morning when we're thinking about the resurrected Christ, Father, we just look around us and we're reminded of all the good things that you bring forth. And Father, we thank you for bringing him from the grave, resurrecting him through your power, Father, so that we may have hope of eternal life with you. Father, we are deeply humbled that you love us enough that you would send him to the earth, that you would send him to be our perfect sacrifice. And Father, help us to live in love and obedience to you. And Father, how could we not for a God who loves us so? And Father, we pray this through your Son, our Savior, Jesus, who is the resurrected Christ. Amen. Well, we're in the sixth week of a seven-part sermon series that we're calling Come, Follow Me. In this series, we've been walking along with Jesus' very first disciples as they followed in his footsteps. And each week, we've been carefully observing where Jesus led his first disciples so we can gain insight into where he is likely to lead us, his disciples, today. And we're doing this to help equip us for our journeys as we strive to follow Jesus at all times and in all places and in all circumstances. And with, as we've mentioned every week, this series is a direct response to our 2014 Netherwood Park theme. It's a theme that we've adopted and it's a theme that we're trying to live out. And that theme is that all may know we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And we selected that theme because we share together a desire to follow Jesus boldly and publicly and consistently. We don't want there to ever be any doubt in anyone's mind that our Lord and Master is Jesus the Christ. So in our first week of the series, we saw that disciples of Jesus are willing to literally drop everything and follow Jesus into the unknown future. And they're willing to do that because they know that they're placing their future in the hands of a God that they know, a God that they trust, and a God that they love. And then the next week as we spoke, we talked about a Samaritan woman, and we saw her at Jacob's well. And we learned that Jesus' disciples allow him to lead them into surprising places so that they can meet surprising people, so that his kingdom can be expanded in surprising ways. And then the week after that, we climbed into a boat with Jesus and his disciples, and we sailed right into the middle of a very violent and powerful storm. And there, Jesus demonstrated that his disciples can have complete confidence that the one who calmed the storm is present with us and cares about us in the midst of our life storms. And then in our fourth week, we followed along as Jesus led his disciples into an upper room for a Passover meal. And we learned that the meal that we share weekly here at the table is a meal where we taste freedom and a meal where we taste salvation. And it's a meal where we receive the strength and nourishment that we need to continue to follow in Jesus' steps. And then last week, we talked about wind we talked about how just as it seemed that the disciples were riding with a strong wind to victory and triumph with Jesus in Jerusalem, the wind suddenly shifted. 
It shifted as we followed Jesus into the garden at Gethsemane. And there he was arrested. And in response to his arrest, his disciples scattered. They fell away. And then we followed with Peter as he went into the courtyard. He went into the courtyard as they were questioning Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And there we saw Peter deny Jesus, deny him three times. And then we followed along with a group of Galilean women as they stood by on a hill and watched as Jesus was killed on the cross. And we learned that disciples who try to rely on their own strength are left very vulnerable. They're left vulnerable to the headwinds which arise of the fear of hostility and the fear of exclusion and the fear of embarrassment that comes about when we are identified and recognized as disciples of Jesus Christ. But as we ended last week, we were able to look ahead. We were able to look ahead in anticipation, and we were able to look ahead with hope, because we know that Jesus' story did not end on the cross, and we know that the disciples' story did not end in failure. So this morning, we're going to celebrate the Easter story. We're going to proclaim the resurrection story, And we're going to relish the story after the cross. And make no mistake, this story isn't about failure. This story is about triumph. This story is about second chances. This story is about a victorious God. And this story is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's our key point this morning. You'll find it on the screen behind me. You'll also find it in the outline that's in your bulletin. Our key point is this, for disciples, the fear and failure of the cross and the doubt of the tomb are replaced by the joy of the resurrection. Let me repeat that. For disciples, the fear and failure of the cross and the doubt of the tomb are replaced by the joy of the resurrection. But as we pick up our story this morning, we'll see that that good news wasn't immediately apparent to Jesus' disciples. Because what was most obvious to them was that their rabbi, their teacher, their leader, the one who had authority and power, their friend, was dead. And not only was he dead, he had died a very public, very humiliating, very painful death, the death of a criminal. And then, as we just heard in the reading, one of those surprising things happened at the hands of a surprising person. You see, Joseph, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was a member of the group who had actually orchestrated the death of Jesus, Joseph stepped out of the shadows that Friday evening. He ignored his fears of hostility. He ignored his fears of exclusion. And he ignored his fears of embarrassment. And he boldly took possession of Jesus' body. And he wrapped his body in linen cloth, and he placed it in his tomb. And those same faithful Galilean women followed, and they observed. And then they went home, and they prepared spices, and they prepared perfumes to take back to anoint Jesus' body after the Sabbath, after our Saturday. So let's pick up our story in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke 24. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Luke 24. 
Luke 24, 1, on the first day of the week, very early on Sunday morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Let's slow down for a minute. Let's let this remarkable scene sink in. Let's slowly walk with these ladies on that Sunday morning to the tomb. Don't you know that they were feeling overwhelming grief? I mean, the one they loved, the one they trusted, the one that they had served so faithfully had been unexpectedly had been suddenly taken away from them. And as they're walking, they're on their way to do something that would have been absolutely unimaginable just three days before. They were walking to Jesus' burial tomb. And they were going there to perform one last act of service. They were going there to perform one last act of love. They were going to anoint his body with spices and perfume. And the only thing that I think that would have been intruding on their grief would have been their doubt and their confusion. They've been asking questions like this. Why did the religious leaders have such anger towards Jesus? Why didn't the government intervene on his behalf? Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Why did it all have to end this way? And maybe most importantly... They had to have been wondering, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now that he's gone? And then they came to the tomb. And their doubt and their confusion was only intensified because there wasn't even a body in the tomb to anoint. And then we read that the two angels appeared and they spoke seven words. Seven words that changed everything. They spoke seven words that changed the lives of those women. And they spoke seven words That changed the world. They said he is not here. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. I want to make sure that we don't lose the power of those words. He is not here. Not because his body has been stolen or misplaced. He is not here. Not because he didn't really die And they buried him by mistake. He is not here because he is risen. He is not here because he has been resurrected. He is not here because God brought Jesus back to life. And then, for those disciples, it all made sense. What had happened was what Jesus had said had to happen. And for those disciples, for those ladies... Their sorrow was replaced with joy. And their doubt and confusion was replaced by certainty and belief. He is not here. He is risen. 
And they did what we would expect. They acted just like people should act who have great news. They went to tell others. They couldn't keep it to themselves. They had to share it. And they especially had to share it with the other followers. They had to share it with those who had been personally affected by Jesus' death. Especially with the eleven. Especially with his inner circle. Especially with his closest friends. They had to be thinking, how excited those people will be. They couldn't wait to share the good news. He is not there. He is risen. So the somber morning trip to the tomb turned into a joyous trip to share the news with the gathered disciples. And as we read the story, we as readers are anticipating a joyous reception for these ladies and for their good news. But instead we read something very different. Luke 24, 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. It wasn't enough. The testimony of these faithful women wasn't enough. The confusion and doubt and skepticism was so strong, it overwhelmed the power of the words, He is not there. He is risen. But fortunately, good news like this isn't so easily dismissed. The reality of the risen Savior isn't so easily ignored. Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked to discuss these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, why are you discussing together? What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread 
gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Another journey. A journey marked by sadness, a journey marked by confusion and doubt, and a journey marked by disappointment, but also a journey marked by wonder. You see, the same wonder that was working on Peter was working on these two disciples. It was working on their hearts. It was working on their minds. See, they'd had hope that Jesus was the Redeemer, and maybe, just maybe, there was still hope. Could there be something to those words? He is not here. He is risen. Is there still hope? And as Jesus dramatically broke the bread, just like he had in the upper room as he shared that last meal with his disciples, their questions were answered. Their hope was restored. He is not there because he is here. He is risen. So those two disciples did what you would expect from two people who had possessed great news and possessed great joy. They rushed back to Jerusalem to share the news with the eleven and all the other disciples. They rushed back to share the news. He is not there. He is risen. Luke twenty four thirty six. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Suddenly, Jesus was right there. He was in the middle of them all, and he addressed their fears and their doubts in the most direct way possible. He said, look. He said, touch. He said, see. He said, I am not there. I am here. I am risen. I love that little phrase that Luke uses. He says, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. I think I know what he meant. It was just too much to take in. It was too good to be true. The news that he is not there because he is here. He is risen. Luke twenty four forty five. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now they get it. Now they understand. Now they see what was accomplished. He is risen so sins can be forgiven. He is risen so salvation can come to all people. He is risen so the power from heaven can be poured out on the disciples. He is risen. God is victorious. He is risen. Sin has lost its power. He is risen. And for the disciples, things would never be the same. For the disciples, things couldn't ever be the same. Because they've encountered the risen Savior. They've encountered the Messiah. They've encountered the King. They've encountered the risen Son of God. And that change in their lives is immediately evident. Luke twenty four fifty. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Their confusion had been replaced with understanding. Their sorrow had been replaced with joy. Their disappointment had been replaced with praise. All because the truth of seven words. He is not here. He has risen. So as a group of people who are here today because we believe that Jesus' tomb is still empty. As people who believe that we continue to encounter the risen Savior, what can we learn from these first disciples as they first encountered the resurrected Christ? Well, we learn many things. We learn that when the resurrected Christ is encountered, things happen. They don't remain the same. First, we learn that encountering the resurrected Jesus leads to joyous worship. The reality that our God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead demands worship. The reality that our God loves us enough to raise Jesus from the dead demands worship. The reality that sin and death have been overcome by the resurrection of Jesus demands our worship. As disciples, we live in the reality that we serve a resurrected Savior. We live in that reality, and so we live our lives with joyful worship on our lips at all times. Disciples of Jesus Christ live in worship. We also learn that encountering the resurrected Jesus leads to testimony. How can we not tell others about the good news of the resurrected Jesus Christ? How is that possible? How can we not tell others about what he has done for us and what he has done for them? Our greatest desire must be for all to encounter the resurrected Messiah. And disciples like us will continually use our testimony to point others to the resurrected one. Disciples of Jesus Christ will 
testify to his resurrection. We also see that encountering the resurrected Lord leads to forgiveness and restoration. At the cross, the disciples failed. They scattered. They fell away. They even denied that they were even associated with Jesus, let alone had been his disciples. But when Jesus returns, he doesn't return with a vengeance. He returns to forgive. He returns to restore. We see this most clearly lived out in John's gospel. When the resurrected Jesus had this conversation with Peter. He has a conversation with the one who had failed him so publicly. Who had denied him three times while Jesus was being questioned by the Sanhedrin. John 21 15, we read about that conversation. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Do you see the beautiful thing that Jesus does for Peter? Jesus washes away the three public denials by allowing Peter to give three public vows of his love for the resurrected Christ. And Jesus leaves no doubt that Peter is fully restored to a position of trust in his kingdom. Disciples know that encountering the resurrected Lord brings about forgiveness and it brings about restoration. And finally, we learn that encountering the resurrected master leads to anticipation. As disciples of Christ, we know that the story isn't over. We know that power is coming from heaven. We know that salvation's coming to the world. We know that God is at work. And we know that Jesus' disciples are to be a central part of that work. And they're to be a witness to the world of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So Jesus' disciples will live always in anticipation of what God is going to do in them and in anticipation of what God is going to do through them. So I want us to end our time this morning with joyful encouragement for all of us as disciples, all of us who are disciples of the resurrected Jesus Christ who are gathered here this morning to worship. Listen to these words. Let us all be people who worship the Lord, for he is risen. And let us all be disciples who proclaim the Lord to the world, because he is risen. And if you're here this morning and you have strayed away from the Lord, it's time to return to the Lord, because he offers forgiveness and restoration, for he is risen. 
And all of us, let's live in joyous anticipation of what God will accomplish in us and through us. For he is risen. Let's stand now. Let's worship and proclaim the risen Savior in song. And let's worship him because he is here and he is risen. Let's sing together.